In addition to the publication of this newsletter, what else has happened on October 17th? According to Sievelpedia, in 1938, City Council began charging foreign merchants a $250 fee to display merchandise. In 1963, six men emerged from a 24-hour stay in a new fallout shelter. And in 1988, council authorized $220,000 to the Charlottesville Redevelopment and Housing Authority related to the development of the Omni Hotel. What will people in the future know about what's happening right now? Will the hundreds of editions of Charlottesville Community Engagement help future research? That cannot be known now, so let's avoid speculative time travel at this time. I'm Sean Tubbs. What you will learn in this edition. Charlottesville City Council suspends remote public comment after recent racist remarks. City Manager Sam Sanders further explains his decision to reimpose operating hours at Market Street Park this Saturday. The person whose arrest in September began the incident speaks to council. And campaign finance reports are in, and both candidates vying for the at-large seat on the Albemarle School Board have raised over $100,000. In today's first subscriber-supported public service announcement, Camp Albemarle has for over 60 years been a wholesome, rural, rustic, and restful site for youth activities, church groups, civic events, and occasional private programs. Located on 14 acres on the banks of the Mormons River near Free Union, Camp Albemarle continues as a legacy of being a civilian conservation corps project that seeks to promote the importance of rural activities. Are you looking to escape and reconnect with nature? Consider holding an event where the natural beauty of the grounds will provide a venue to suit your needs. Visit their website to view the gallery and learn more. A recent blast of racist public comments at a Charlottesville City Council meeting has prompted the elected body to suspend the ability of anyone to make a comment without being present. The incident took place at Council's meeting on October 2nd. Council has a practice of first taking public comment on matters on the consent agenda. That's a list of items that are fairly routine and Council does not require a discussion. On October 2nd, a man who called himself Jim Conley pretended to want to speak about pass-through funding for bulletproof vests. Instead, he made a racist comment that drew gasps from the audience. Yeah, I want to talk about the bulletproof vests. Okay. So I, I believe we need to buy more bulletproof vests. Just, uh, these are for the police, right? Right. Yeah, definitely get more bulletproof vests for the police because all these crazy that are just running around shooting people. You can't, you can't be too safe. In an article in the Daily Progress, writer Jason Armesto describes how the incidents kept happening that evening. On October 16th, council began their meeting with an announcement from Charlottesville Mayor Lloyd Snook. We've decided in light of recent developments that we will temporarily suspend uh, public comment by Zoom. Council voted 4-0 to zero to suspend the rules, with Councillor Leah Perrier absent from the meeting. The change was made immediately, and Snook invited people to come to council chambers to make their comment. One person who did speak was Don Gathers, a one-time candidate for city council who cut his campaign short due to racial harassment. 
He disagreed with councils to cut off remote comment. Especially without any notification. Uh, as we've seen, there are several people who wanted to speak tonight who have now been, they, they've had that, that, that possibility eliminated from them. I think that that's something that should have been brought to the citizens and they should have been made aware before it was enacted. Several people did end up going to chambers to make their comments anyway. We'll see what happens at Council's next regular meeting on November 6th. There are now only four more nights in which people will be allowed to stay overnight in Charlottesville's Market Street Park. City manager Sam Sanders dropped hours of operation on September 20th and outlined a strategy to provide assistance to individuals at the meeting on October 2nd. Last night, Sanders brought up the matter in his report to council. On Thursday, Pacham announced they would begin overnight shelter services a week early. Um, the Salvation Army has also confirmed that they have beds available and they will also support Pacham with additional uh, capacity through the use of their warm room when needed. Sanders thanked the pastor of First United Methodist Church for their willingness to provide space at the Hinton Avenue Methodist Church for the first week of Pacham's services. Pacham uses places of worship to provide a place for people in need to stay through the winter months. Sanders said the team of people he has put together to work on this issue is being led by Deputy City Manager Ashley Marshall. That commitment is there. We will continue to work on this issue long term. Uh, and it's, it's a complicated issue, and we know there's a lot more that needs to be done. Sanders said all city parks have hours of operation, with times set by ordinance by council. On Saturday at 11 p.m., Market Street Park will close once again. Market Street Park will be closed until 6 a.m. There should be no one in the park during that time. It is my hope that everyone currently in the park will take advantage of the alternatives available to them. I have asked for all service providers in this area to collaborate collectively to do what we can to make sure that the services are provided to the individuals who are currently in the park. The looming re-imposition of a closing time raised the concern of Ange Kahn, who works at The Haven, but made her comments as a private individual. Uh, have you all seen how beautifully set up the park is? Humans have organized themselves in a way uh, we can only dream of seeing in a community who's been intentionally targeted, criminalized, and deemed not worthy of having their basic human needs and rights met or being seen as less than human. Khan said the current residents in the park are keeping themselves safe, and she proposed the city build tiny homes in the park. Council also heard from the man whose arrest in September prompted allegations of police brutality. Here is Roscoe Boxley. I'm the one that started all this controversy. I do not apologize. I'm glad that it happened. Boxley thanked Sanders for lifting the closing hours and for the provision of porta-potties. But he said Pacham and the Salvation Army have their limits. He also said he's heard many people disparaging people who ended up homeless because of the rising cost of living. Everybody has something to say about the park. Some, everybody has something to say about homeless people. If you don't have a solution, shut up. Just shut up. Boxley called on people to work together to find a solution. The differences in opinions without compromise is what's fogging everyone with what a solution is. Boxley said he didn't want to tear the system down and wants instead to build it up. But he said to do so, he needs a way into the conversation that is safe. You got to give me an opportunity to benefit from it, just like all the rest of the people. 
I'm black. I was born with people hating me. I'm homeless. Now my circumstances make people hate me. And then I'm an ex-con. So now I got the pressure from everybody that has a badge on. Everywhere I go, I'm afraid for my life. Everywhere. I'm afraid of the cops. I'm afraid of the streets. I'm afraid of everything that's going on around. So I respond like it. Several other speakers protested the restoration of the operating hours. One of them was Deirdre Gilmore. I really wish y'all would reconsider. And I know it's people that stood here tonight and, and talked down about people. But the one thing I'm, I'm going to say, you don't really know what situation you may end up in. So at least look at them like they're human. Not everyone who spoke was supportive, such as Michael Goodwin. He said he did not think the recent murder nearby indicates the area is safe. Also, how we have come to surmise that the proper way of assisting the people that are in Market Street Park is by allowing them to live in tents without proper facilities Goodwin advocated for the city to continue to invest in housing programs. Charlottesville Community Engagement exists in part to write about those housing programs and to measure them as they continue to be rolled out. And we continue to look at the ones that have been rolled out in the past. Thank you for listening, and there's more to come. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and since the beginning of this newsletter, one Patreon supporter has dedicated their shout-out to an organization that seeks to draw awareness of the importance of native species to the ecosystem. The leaves are changing, and this year's season is winding down. So, this is perhaps the best time to think about what to do next year. And there's no time like now to visit Plant Northern Piedmont Natives to learn what you can about what species are specific to your region. The partnership has 10 regional campaigns for 10 different ecosystems across Virginia, from the Northern Piedmont to the Eastern Shore. Take a look at the full map below in the newsletter for the campaign for native species where you are in the Commonwealth. You can also download a free copy of their handbook, Piedmont Native Plants guide for landscapes and gardens. In this guide, Piedmont native plants are defined as those that evolved before the influence of European settlements shaped and changed the landscape. Plants included in the guide were selected from the Digital Atlas of the Virginia Flora and occur naturally within the region. Fans of my voice rejoice because there are no sound bites from here until the end. Covering local elections is very different in this era of early voting, when many have already cast a ballot. Yet the Virginia Public Access Project makes it easier to get information out to people about the current state of the race, and so here we are. As of yesterday, 4,949 people had voted in Albemarle County. In Charlottesville, 1,206 voters have already had their say. That's almost the same number in Fluvanna County, where 1,245 people have selected their candidates. Meanwhile, in Greene County, 677 people have voted, with presumably some of them writing in someone for the Monroe District seat that does not have a candidate on the ballot. 
In Louisa, 1,708 voters have exercised their right, and 722 have done so in Nelson County. The Virginia Public Access Project has also processed the latest campaign finance reports for the period covering the month of September. Of note is that none of the three candidates for Charlottesville City Council appears to have raised any money. As of publication time, candidate Natalie Oshrin had not filed a report, Councilor Michael Payne spent $334, and current Mayor Lloyd Snook spent $6. The race is uncontested, three seats on the ballot, three candidates on the ballot. The Charlottesville School Board is also uncontested. Of the four candidates on the ballot, only Amanda Burns filed a report as of publication time. There was no activity. There are no reports for Chris Meyer, Shimora Cooper, or Nicole Richardson. All five candidates for three seats on the Board of Supervisors have filed their paperwork. In the Rivanna District, incumbent Democrat B. Lepisto-Kirtley faces independent T.J. Faderly. Lepisto-Kirtley began the month with $10,299 and raised $5,025. The candidate spent $2,868 and had $12,456 on hand going into October. Fatally outraised his opponent in September. He began with a balance of 10624 and raised $6,975. Both he and Lepisto-Kirtley received a $1,000 contribution from the Blue Ridge Home Builders Association's Shelter Pack. The independent candidate spent $4,556 in September and had $13,042 at the end of the month. In the Whitehall District, Independent Brad Rickle faces four-term incumbent and Malik. Malik had $20,573 in the bank on September 1st and raised $5,850 in the period. The campaign spent $10,237 with $8,725 of that going to the Blue Ridge Group. The end-of-month balance was $16,185. Rickle began the month with $3,246, raised $1,048, and spent $2,366. There was $1,927 in the campaign account as of September 30th. In the Scottsville district, lone candidate Michael Pruitt raised $137, including $55 in an in-kind donation. He spent $734, including that in-kind donation. The most expensive election in Albemarle County history might turn out to be the race for the at-large seat on the school board this year. Meg Bryce and Allison Spillman are vying to replace Jono Alcaro as the lone elected representative in the county. Spillman began the month with $34,920 and raised $48,615 in cash, with another $3,810 in in-kind donations. The cash includes another donation from Sonia Smith, this time at $15,000. The campaign spent $39,723 in cash in the month and had an ending balance of $43,813. Bryce had $33,756 in the campaign account on September 1st and raised $36,747 with another $2,729 in in-kind donations. The top donor for her campaign this month is Richard Gilliam, with $10,000. 
The Bryce campaign spent $19,184 in cash and had a balance of $51,319 on September 30th. Through the end of September, Spillman has raised a total of $104,216 in cash, and Bryce has raised a total of $103,830. That amount does not include in-kind donations, and I think the math is right on that. I calculated it and have a spreadsheet, so come back at me if you think it's wrong. The other officially contested school board race is in the Whitehall District. Appointed incumbent Rebecca Berlin began the month with $3,262, raised $3,949, and spent $250. Challenger Joanne McDermott started September with $4,803, raised $1,450, and spent $5,053. In the Rivanna race, incumbent Judy Lee is the only candidate on the ballot. She raised $1,625 and spent $1,287 to have an ending balance of September 30th. I do realize that that's a month and not the actual amount. I'm actually going to leave this in and see if anybody notices. I'll fix it in the newsletter, but it's kind of funny. Lee does have a write-in challenger in Michelle de Stefano. The candidate did file a report and raised $625 and spent $262 to have a balance of $780. Scottsville District School Board member Ellen Osborne does not have an opponent. She raised $250, spent $217, and had an ending balance of $817. In 2021, none of the three seats on the Albemarle Board of Supervisors was contested. But 2019 was another expensive race for at least two candidates. Independent Michael Johnson raised $99,336 for his write-in campaign against Democrat B. Lepisto Kirtley for the Rivanna supervisor race. Republican Michael Hallahan raised $93,866 in his campaign against Democrat Donna Price. I'll have reports from other counties in the next edition of the program. Goodbye, 591. Today's newsletter covered three stories, and I had hoped to get to another one on Albemarle County's transportation priority list. That would have come from a discussion from two weeks ago. My vision of journalism is one where people who want to take an interest but can't attend meetings can at least keep up with what's happening through summaries. In fact, that's my business model pretty much in a nutshell. Produce information people trust and trust that people will pay for it. I briefly worked as an advocate, and the experience of attempting to tell people what to think caused me physical pain. I'm a believer that people with access to information can augment their worldview by knowing what's going on and how they can get involved. Maybe they can donate to a campaign, volunteer to a cause, help someone in need, directly or indirectly. I don't know, I just know I'm compelled to do this work and grateful for paying subscribers. I'm sure I'm out of time now, so let's just hit that bell and get on to 592. Thank you very much. Goodbye.